0: The scripture is found in 1 Peter. We are back to 1 Peter. At this particular point, the letter of Peter takes a little bit of a turn. Previously, if you'll remember, as we've looked at this through the winter and going into the spring, the Apostle Peter is writing to the larger Christian community, and he's speaking about Suffering believers in a hostile world, in a world where they are sojourners and strangers and aliens in a way. He now turns from speaking about how suffering believers are to live in an insufferable world. He turns now to talking about how they are to live with each other and among each other. And it turns here on chapter four, verse seven. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. I learned a new word. Can't believe I hadn't heard it earlier in my life and study of Scripture, but it was buried in a commentary, the Anchor Bible. Commentary, one that I use as I study through these texts. And the word is primo petrophile. (laughs) Isn't that beautiful? Primo petrophile. Well, you probably figured it out now. File is someone who loves. You know, an audiophile loves audio, music, things of that sort. And petro is Peter. And primo or primo is first. So a primo petrophile is someone who loves the letter of First Peter. <laughs> and that's me. But it's not only, do, "Do I love it?" And I know you do too, but you might be interested to know that it was probably the most used, in a practical way, most expounded or uh, letter in the Apostolic fathers. A Clement. Ignatius, those men who lived right around the turn of the first century into the second century, used the letters of Peter, especially First Peter, as the basis of their pastoral care and pastoral ministry. There was a certain primacy to this letter. And I think that is self-explanatory when you see Peter's heart. You know, Peter had been restored by the Lord when the Lord said, feed my sheep, tend my lambs, take care of my flock. Three times he had denied the Lord and three times the Lord affirmed his mission. And you remember, Peter then was restored to ministry and given the shepherd's heart. The fisherman became a shepherd of God's people. He's been concerned about us. Peter is concerned about us because we live in a world that is hostile to our point of view. We live in a world where our Christian, or believers' perspective on all things practically Is different at least, if not diametrically opposed to the prevailing viewpoints around us. We enjoyed about two and a half to three centuries of reprieve from that phenomenon here in America because of the founding of our country which is founded upon pretty strong biblical worldview values and perspectives, but that's eroded. That's gone. Freud, Darwin, Hegel, Marx, others have infected the thinking of our people, and now predominantly we have a different view. The biblical worldview was that there was a teleos. That's the Greek word. It means end. It also means a consummation, a fulfillment, a close, a conclusion. It can also mean a goal or an outcome. It's used in the first chapter of this Epistle where Peter says that you obtained the end of your salvation, the goal, which is the salvation of your souls. The teleos is the end, and that's the word that's used here in the very first of our text. The end of all things is at hand. We believe in the biblical worldview that there is an end because there was a beginning. Genesis, the beginning of all things is where it starts. The biblical viewpoint is that there is the end of an age. We live in an age. We live in an epoch of time. And that the times are not only the creation of God, but they're in the providential hands of God at all times. No matter what it is, God is in control. And the perspective of the biblical writers, from the very beginning, was that there is a creation that starts it all and a consummation that ends it all. And that time is linear. It is not cyclical and circular like it was believed in the ancient world. They followed the seasons and the patterns and the the rotations of the heavenly bodies and all of these things, and they saw things happening over and over and over. But all of that is part of the creation. There is an end, there is a last day, there is a day of the Lord, there's a time that will end it as we know it. Now actually we know in a fuller perspective that it's the end of time, the beginning of eternity. The end of one kind of existence, that which we find out about the earth, where God made the earth and then took out of the earth man, mankind. And that is the times in which God started it all. But there's a time when the hand of God will end it all. And the earth was the theater, the arena of God's creation, the earth and the heavens and all of the universe as we know it. There's a lot of people worried about our planet these days. We had a famous scientist this week to tell us that we better get with it because the earth is probably has less than a hundred years to survive and we're not gonna make it unless we get space exploration going and find us another planet somewhere in the universe where we can maintain the race. He's concerned about the maintenance of the human race. And so we have it in our prospects now a certain agitation and a certain concern that we've got to save our planet. If we can't save our planet, we've got to escape our planet, but we've got to do something. It's in our hands and our fate is there. We can see it, they say, in the science. (laughs) But that's not our perspective as Christians. Our perspective is that God has a purpose for earth, and he put earth here for a purpose and for a time being. And that earth will survive and humanity will thrive for as long as God so intends and determines. Not one day longer. Not one nanosecond less. That's our view. Is that different from what we hear echoing around us? in the academic community and in media and in daily conversation and in in everything that we seem to hear. That's a totally different worldview. Let me tell you just how serious Peter is about this worldview. He dedicates the best part of chapter 3 of his second letter to this. Let me just read it for you. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you may remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord through the apostles, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. Isn't that just a good, an old-fashioned word to describe modern academia in many ways? Just a scoffer. A scoffer doesn't have to present... Empirical valid evidence. A scoffer just has to have in his soul a certain amount of derision, a certain amount of scorn, a certain amount of contempt, finding things to be contemptuous and deplorable. This is what's said. There come us scoffers in the last days. That's these days of the end, that's these days in the, of fulfillment, that's these days that Peter's talking about, following their own sinful desires. There's the origin of their motive. I've often wondered about motives of those that hate Christ and hate the gospel. It's just a sinful motive. It's an anti-God, an anti-Christ spirit. John tells us the spirit of antichrist is in the world. It's in the world today. And that's what it is. It arises out of sinful desires They will say, where is the promise of his coming? Who says Christ will come and that'll be the end of it? Who says that there's going to be an end to all of this? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continued as they were from the beginning of creation. There's here a doctrine of uniformitarianism, that things have been uniform and and standard ever since. There's no evidence or proof that there's going to be a second coming of Christ because... thousand years have already come and gone. Paul expected Christ to return imminently soon. So did Peter. So did the apostles. Jesus talked in those terms when he made the prediction. And now we've had two whole millennia have come and gone and we're in the third millennia. Where's the promise of his coming? You've got to be kidding me. He hasn't come yet. What makes you think he's going to come at all? I just remind you from a chronological standpoint, there's the same number of years between Abraham and Christ as there is between Christ and us today. (laughs) 2,000 years, the promises God made to Abraham took 2,000 years before Christ came in Bethlehem. And so this is how Peter reasons reasons it. So well, they deliberately overlooked the fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water through water by the Word of God. That's a description of the creation, Genesis 1. And that by means of these the world had existed, was deluged with water and perished. That's Genesis 6, that's the flood. But by the same Word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire being kept into a day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Oh. There's why sinful hearts are not anxious to talk about the last day because the last day is a day of judgment. It's a day of reckoning. It's a day of what the word's thrown around all the time nowadays, accountability. Every man, woman, boy and girl will give an account of himself before the Lord. I would try to put that out of my mind too if I wasn't right with God I would try to reason and rationalize away a last day, a judgment day, a final day, a reckoning day. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. Now there's a different perspective. How long does it take us to reckon through a millennium? Remember Y2K, (laughs) all the horrors that we expected 17 years ago? 17 years ago, we fretted Y2K. Well, that was why one day with the Lord? That's a different perspective. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness. God's got a different clock. He's got a different watch. He's got a different timetable. But is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach Repentance. Why does the Lord tarry judgment? Why does He delay judgment? Waiting, patiently, forbearance, long-suffering, calling, urging, letting the gospel be preached one more time to a set of deaf ears that they may open Their eyes and see Christ. God's dispositive will, his disposition is that he doesn't want to see anyone perish. God says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Lord doesn't want to see a single soul lost. That's his disposition. Yet sadly we learn and we discover that all would be lost for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but for the gracious work of God in regeneration and in calling. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And listen to this, then the heavens and the earth will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, in the earth and the works that are done in them will be exposed. Now that's a good time to be off the planet. If you wanna find some place to escape that's not terrestrial, I would recommend to you the celestial. Heaven would be my recommendation. Find the path to heaven. Find the way to heaven, find the door to heaven, the gate to heaven. Find someone that's willing to take you on that last flight out. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Oh, there's an ethical dimension to all of this gloom and doom talk. The ethical dimension is, it makes a difference how we live now. What is in prospect and imminent in view, the end of all things makes a difference in how we live today in all ways. What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? There's a couple of words you don't hear too much. Holiness, and godliness holy means to be separated and cleaned up and straightened up and purified that's what the gospel tells us is that Christ on the cross and the spirit of god in our hearts are taking care of that work and godliness means god likeness it's actually an abbreviated english word for god likeness being like god godliness, in his moral attributes, and in his communicable attributes, those things that can be communicated to the creature and were, of course, we're told, as man was created in the likeness, God-likeness, the likeness and image of God. Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Notice those phrases waiting for. We know it's coming, but we wait for it. And hastening the day, moving toward the day. It'll be a day of judgment. Why don't we take care of issues of judgment now? Why don't we look to the cross as our judgment instead of waiting for Christ to condemn us in our sins because of our anti-Christ mindset and attitude, our rebellion and our sinfulness and our violence. Why don't we move that day of justice and judgment and righteousness, move that day of salvation forward and make it, something that's settled in our life. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Are you waiting for the verdict of the judgment day? A verdict is coming. But in Christ, we've already heard the judge count, declare, acquittal. No condemnation. Hastening the day, moving it here. Don't wait for it there. Take care of it here. Make the right decisions and the right living and the right perspectives now. There won't be any atheist in eternity. When I hear an atheist blaspheme God or someone curse God's name, I cannot wait for the day when God condemns them to an eternal hell. So, oh, that sounds harsh. Well, I pray for their salvation. And I know the Lord can save. He saves, saves the cheapest of sinners. He saved the vilest sinner when he saved me. So I know he can. I know he will. I know he does. But if they're going to persist in that their whole life and die with cursing on their breath, as Christopher Hitchens did and others, Then what's a just and righteous and holy and loving Father who proffered His own Son for their salvation and they trampled underfoot the blood of Christ every step of the way to Judgment Day? Waiting for and hasting the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt away. as The the heavenly bodies will melt away as they burn. Oh no, even if we find that distant planet in the next century, and we're able to get there and we're able to find the conditions such that life can survive. And by the way, if you look at the entire universe, so far what we know, there's not another place anywhere except this orbit on this planet has the temperature, the water, the rains, the oxygen mix, et cetera, et cetera, to sustain life as we know it. But if we find that place out there in the distant star and we're able to get there on the rim of space out there somewhere, it doesn't sound like its prospects are all that good either. The heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to His promise, that's all we have. We're, We're going to believe the Word of God. That's all we've got. It's God's promise. Our whole hope hangs upon sheer, mere faith, belief, trust in what God promises. According to his promise, we're waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Not sinfulness, not wickedness, not perversity, not rebellion against God, not atheism, not anti-theism, not bitterness and cursing, not strife and envy, not hate and violence but righteousness dwells. I didn't even get started. Uh, good news is Mark told me this morning we're going to be in this passage for a couple more weeks. So there may be a couple of more things there that I might be able to point out when we get there.